Why should we as believers learn about cults and religions? In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, God says to us that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speak the truth in love that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. God also says to us in Colossians 2.8 that we should beware lest anyone cheat us through philosophy, through empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And right there, we have Buddhism. Through philosophy and empty deceit, and through the traditions according to men, the basic principles of this world. Why should we as believers learn about cults and religions? God has given us a good reason. He does not want us to be deceived. Therefore, these studies are an effort to bring to our awareness some of the deceitful doctrines that have been sprinkled into our lives that, as a result, we might be better equipped to identify them and avoid them. Also, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, that we should preach the word. We should be ready in season and out of season. We should convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. And if you thought that was just for pastors, here we have in 1 Peter 3.15 that all believers should sanctify, set apart the Lord in our hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that was in you with meekness and fear. This would be significant for the Buddhists because in context here, these believers that Peter was talking to were suffering because of the persecution of being Christians. And they didn't give up their hope. And people are wondering why they didn't give up. And I think what we'll see here, hopefully, <laughs> is that Buddhism is really a question about a, 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 an attempt to answer the theodicy, which is, why is there evil in the world if God is good? And with that in mind, I wanted to read this to you. I believe Buddha was the first angry atheist. And this is my proof right here. He's talking about uh, Brahman, uh, who was the Hindu god, the ultimate being, the ultimate consciousness. He was the creator, the sustainer, the provider, the one that you were hoping to get back in touch with if you were a Hindu. And this is what the Buddha said about Brahman. If Brahman is the lord of the whole world and creator of the multitude of beings, then why has he ordained misfortune in the world without making the whole world happy? Sound familiar? The whole, for, uh, or for what purpose has he made the world full of injustice, falsehood, and conceit? Or is the Lord of beings evil in that he ordained injustice when there could have been justice? So this is like talking to uh, possibly one of your atheist friends. How can there be a God if there's so much evil in the world, Right? And that's what uh, the Buddha was struggling with when he was um, trying to figure out life as he became a, a husband and a father and looked towards his responsibilities as becoming a king, which we'll see. So while, as, I, as I go through this lesson, I'm going to kind of slow down quite a bit in just the story of the Buddha, who he was and how he became the Buddha. And I'll, I'll expose you to the, the basic um, teachings of Buddhism. But what I want you to get here is that Buddhism is really um, seeking to answer the question, why is there evil in the world if there is a good God? Right? And the answer they give is not that great. So why should we as believers learn about cults and religions? So that we would be more prepared in our evangelistic efforts, as Tom said, to share the gospel with them. Interesting here it says, uh, to, sh to share the hope that was within us with meekness and fear. The idea of meekness here carries the idea of to be considerate and fear could be respectful. And what better way to... Um, what better way to show consideration and respect than by taking some time to understand, in general at least, what the person who is that we're trying to talk to. Who are they? Where are they from? What do they believe? It's good and right for us to be careful to take, uh, take uh, uh, careful measures to, to, to read the scriptures in context. 
It's also important for us to understand the person we're talking to in context. Otherwise, we might be perceived as merely a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So it's worthwhile for us to become familiar with Buddhism tonight because God does not want us to be deceived by its doctrines and philosophies, and it's also worthwhile for us to be exposed to Buddhism a little bit tonight because we are called to be ambassadors to the Buddhist, to share our hope of eternal life with uh, in, a, in a considerate and respectful way. All right, defining Buddhism. So, as I said in, when I was explaining Hinduism, when we put ism at the end of a word, it makes that uh, word mean a specific practice, a theory, or system that's usually uh, seen as authoritative by a school or um, group of people, such as Darwinism, creationism, liberalism, or conservatism, or any other ism. But tonight we're talking about Buddhism. And Buddhism, like Hinduism, is bigger than any one religion. It is a collection of religious traditions that have been uh, developed over 2,500 years. <laughs> so there's quite a variety of traditions. Some Buddhists believe in gods and demons, while others don't. Uh, they disagree about their sacred texts, and some would even say that you can be a Christian Buddhist or an atheist Buddhist or a fill-in-the-blank Buddhist. Because Buddhism is not about believing. Rather, it's about doing and therefore, a person could incorporate Buddhist practices with their personal beliefs to enhance their own understanding and cultivate discipline. Do you see the error in thinking there? Buddhists think of themselves as not about believing or, or being any specific thing, but they're all about doing. It's the practical nature of it. But we don't do things unless we believe in things. You, know, you don't get in the car and turn on the ignition unless you believe that getting in the car and turning on the ignition is going to have results, right? We, you don't sit down in the chair unless you think the chair is going to hold you up. So we don't take action. Our actions, or I should rather say, uh, we take actions based upon what we believe. So you can't remove action from believing. And even in their eightfold path, they, the, the way it's ordered, they start in the mind about what they believe and then they move into action. So they're pretty, when you're reading Buddhist literature, they like to contradict themselves, unfortunately, and they don't really care that they contradict themselves. Um, so it makes it confusing. And when you're interacting with a Buddhist, this would probably happen. <laughs> so uh, for our lesson tonight, Buddhism is a generic term referring to a variety of religious and philosophical traditions that have developed from the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama. That is the uh, Buddha's name, Siddhartha, and Gautama is his family name. I wanted to read you a quote here uh, from one of the books I read, uh, Defining Buddhism. That's not the name of the book. Um, the book was Buddhism for Beginners, No-Nonsense Buddhism. Uh, the quote is, In the book Buddhist Wisdom, The Path to Enlightenment, the Dalai Lama, who's one of the rock stars of Buddhism, <laughs> said, Do not try to use what you learn from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. Use it to be a better whatever you are already. Whatever you already are. And then the author goes on to say, I personally know Buddhists who are atheists, Buddhists who are Christians, Buddhists who do not identify with any other ideological or re religious label. Buddhism can be practiced somewhat like yoga as something you do, something not something that you are. See how confusing that is? Again, you, you act on what you believe. You can't, you can't just add this into what you believe without adopting what's behind it. Uh, like Hinduism, uh, Buddhism is, monad, uh, in a, in, is a theory of monism, that is, all is one. The theory of monism denies the existence or the distinction of duality in some sphere, such as between matter and mind or God and the world. Another way of describing monism is that everything is one. And in Hinduism, everything was one, back to uh, Brahman, the ultimate existence, and in Hinduism or Buddhism, everything also is considered to be ultimately one. Um, this is a quote from a former Buddhist monk who became a Christian named Ellis Potter describing monism. The idea that all is one has its roots in ancient versions of monism. It is the foundation of Hinduism and Buddhism, the great monistic religions. Siddhartha Gautama 
uh, meditated under the Bodhi tree, supposed to say Bodhi tree there, for 40 days and 40 nights. Then he was enlightened. He opened his eyes and saw the planet Venus on the horizon. He knew he was enlightened because he knew he was looking at himself. Uh, a lack of food and sleep deprivation can make you see weird things. Uh, <laughs> uh, if all is one, I am the planet Venus. If all is one, then you are God. Another term, uh, with Hinduism, I brought up the idea of uh, pluralism. With a bit Buddhism, I'm bringing up the idea of relativism, which is the belief that knowledge, truth, or morality um, exists in relation to culture, society, and historical context and are not uh, absolute. When you listen to a Buddhist talk about whether, what they should do, it's highly contextualized. Like they're, They don't even want to talk about dharma, uh, karma, excuse me, as good karma or bad karma, they want to call it uh, skillful karma or unskillful karma, and you decide what you're going to do based upon the flow of what's going on in that situation, and it's built upon the context. And so their ethics changes because they think everything is always changing, nothing is permanent. So they might have a different answer to what they ought to do in a situation because there's no absolute truth, it's relative. So relativism is true is not always true. That doesn't make any sense, but okay. <laughs> and, uh, uh, the common illustration here, and you might have seen this before, that's an elephant, right? Um, is uh, when a Hindu or a Buddhist might try to explain their, their concept of truth, they'll say, well, truth is like uh, a bunch of guys uh, with different, uh, in front of an elephant, touching different parts of the elephant. One guy is in the front of the elephant touching the trunk of the elephant, and he's like, oh, God is like a snake. And one's towards the back, and they say, no, 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 God's like a rope. And one's on the side saying, no, God's like a big wall, because he's touching the belly of the elephant. And the other one's by the legs. He's like, no, God's like a tree. One's touching the ear, and he's like, no, God's like a fan, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so what they're trying to say is that truth is relative to your experience and your understanding, and everybody's got a little bit of truth. The interesting thing here is that the person who's giving you this as an explanation has actually taken the, the high ground because they see themselves as the one who sees all of this going on, right? They don't see themselves as one of the dumb guys touching just the, uh, the tail or the ear or, or the leg because they've figured out what uh, that truth is relative. And so, in reality, if what they're saying is true, what they're saying explodes because their statement of truth is a relative statement as well. No absolute truths. It's mere opinion, mere conjecture. It's, 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 uh, in the end, if you're going to push it to the extreme, you could win the argument by having uh, the most power or influence or maybe having a, the, you know, the most guns <laughs> with regards to a power play. But anyway... Let's move to the history and development of Buddhism. Where did Buddhism come from? Buddhism finds its origins, like I said, 2,500 years ago in the town of Lumbini, located um, in modern-day Nepal in the foothills of the Himalayas. Um, if you remember our lesson, India is the home of Hinduism, and Buddhism was born out of, if you will, a struggling Hindu worldview, and therefore Buddhism shares some important concepts about life, like samsara, the cycle of rebirth and death that we're stuck in. It's part of their bad news, what they think is wrong with life. They also believe in karma. There's a little bit different nuance in karma, um, which we'll get into. But as you see here on the screen... Buddhism came, was developed in the 5th century B.C. It's non-Vedic. Uh, it's a non-Vedic tradition and was part of the Sramana movement in northern India in the 5th century B.C. Sramanas were an ascetic, a group of ascetic monks or holy men teaching a variety of doctrines that diverged from Brahmanism. Remember, like I said, uh, Buddhism is a bit, of a, a bit of a reaction or an attempt to reform Hinduism because of the problem of evil. And... Uh, these Sramana monks did not consider uh, the Vedas authoritative. That's why they're considered to be 
non-Vedic, a non-Vedic religion. Jainism is another example of the Sramana movement developed around the same time. Buddhism in particular rejected the idea of caste. The, uh, the caste system in Hinduism was the, they believed that every person is born into a certain caste and there was four of them. There was the priestly caste and there was the governing or, or military caste and then there was the entrepreneurs and the businessmen caste and then there was the service caste and then there was even another caste, the untouchables. But uh, Siddhartha didn't like the caste system. He also rejected the idea of the priest, the middleman. He thought the priests were corrupt because they were uh, manipulating their position. He did not believe in Brahman or believe in Atman. And so Atman in Hinduism was the belief of the eternal soul. So when a Hindu thinks that you die and you're reincarnated, your Atman or Atman is what persists to the next birth. But in Buddhism, they don't believe in the actual soul. There is no soul. Again, they sound more and more atheistic the more you, you learn, but there are Buddhists out there that believe in gods and so forth. Buddhism's rise in popularity came at a time when Hindu religious traditions had become a kind of dry well for many people because of the caste system, which was at that time elevated, and the Brahmin caste to, was the only caste fit for enlightenment. Buddhism, on the other hand, made nirvana, which is their idea of moksha. In Hinduism, moksha was the ultimate goal. You wanted to be uh, reunited with... Uh, the eternal consciousness in Buddhism, you want nirvana. And the word nirvana actually means to blow out. Right. The end goal is non-existence for the Buddhist. Buddhism is not a rival of Hinduism, but was more an attempt to uh, reform it. Many of the early Buddhist monks were actually from the Brahmin caste. They were the, the priestly caste. As you can see in the map of India, there is also next to it a monument to Siddhartha Gautama. That's uh, where he was born. After his enlightenment, the Buddha set out to share his experience and to teach um, others how to follow his Eightfold Path, or also called the Middle Way. He taught and traveled for 45 years. Uh, small communities of monks and nuns, uh, uh, after he died, came up called the um, the bhikkhus, <laughs> they sprung up uh, along the roads and, uh, and also spread the message of the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths. This guy was important, though. About 200 years later, this guy all dressed up here was supposed to be King Ashoka. Uh, King Ashoka was largely responsible for the spread of Buddhism beyond India's borders and its emergence as one of the world's great religions. He, set em he sent emissaries as far as Greece to the west and China to the east. He practiced tolerance, which is a big aspect of Buddhism, and respect for other religions and disciplines. He promoted peace instead of war, another big aspect of Buddhism, and established schools, hospitals, orphanages for his people. And Buddhists are nice people. They're very moral, and they have uh, a long list of things that they're trying to accomplish which might be another touch point for when you want to talk to a Buddhist. I wonder how well they're doing. Probably not so good. <clears throat> um, with the spread of Buddhism, the tradition, traditional practices and philosophies of Buddhism became refined and regionally distinct. Now, I'm saying that because there's a lot of different kinds of Buddhism, and as it spread out, and because like Hinduism, it syncretizes. It, as it goes into another area, it kind of absorbs... Uh, and, and changes based upon uh, the people who are trying to practice it. Ready? They, 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 there's, Buddhism is being sold as something that you can add on to your life to make you a better you. Only a small minority practice the earliest forms of Buddhism, and Buddhists' in influence has a whole, as a whole began to fade within India. Here is a map showing the spread of Buddhism in general, but more specifically it shows the areas where the three major schools of Buddhism took root, um, Theravada Buddhism is uh, the dark red and then we have the Mahayana Buddhism that is the yellow and then we have the orange which is the it's, it's essentially the Tibetan Buddhism but it's also called Vajrayana Buddhism 
Buddhism is one of the world's oldest global religions and today's fastest growing. There's over 500 million Buddhists. The United States has become the mission field of Buddhism, probably the most attractive of all to the non-Christian probably the most attractive of all the non-Christian religions to the Western mind, with over two million homegrown Buddhists in America. Perhaps Buddhism is so popular because of its compatibility with the naturalistic evolutionary worldview that permeates the Western world. And so one of the things that's attractive to Buddhism is that you can be religious, but you don't have to believe in God. You can have rituals, and you can say prayers, and you can have a community, and you can feel good about yourself, but you don't have to have any authority. And it's very appealing in that way. <clears throat> Not to be confused with Shintoism. Shintoism is the indigenous religious beliefs of Japan. Um, if you've ever gotten into Japanese anime, and hopefully maybe you, I, don't, I never did, I don't, but you shouldn't either, I don't. <laughs> um, Pokemon? Uh, anyway, um, Shintoism has an, uh, no founder, no official sacred scriptures, and in a strict sense has no dogmas. Shinto gods are called kami, uh, K-A-M-I. They are sacred spirits which take, form for, uh, take the form of things and concepts important to life, such as the rain, the wind, the mountains, the trees, and the rivers. And it's very kind of like a nationalistic thing. Like There's like a special, the Japanese people are part of this, these, this uh, Shinto religion, like they're when they die, they can become gods. Not to be confused either with Confucianism. Confucianism is a philosophy and belief system from ancient China, which laid the foundation for much of the Chinese culture. Confucius was a philosopher and teacher who lived from 551 to 479 BC. His thoughts on ethics and good behavior and moral character were written down by his disciples in several books. Uh, he came up with the famous golden rule here. Uh, do, not, do not do unto others what you would not want others to do unto you. Sounds biblical, right? Also not to be confused with Taoism or Taoism. This is a religion and a philosophy from ancient China that, was influ that has influenced folk and was influenced by folk and national beliefs. Taoism has been connected with the philosopher Lao Tzu, who uh, was from around 500 BC as well. He wrote the book of Taoism called the To Te Che Ching. And Taoism is really uh, big in martial arts, and this is also a big part when you listen to how, how they speak, they talk about the flow of the chi. The chi is kind of like the force, and there's good and there's bad chi, and it sounds a lot like Star Wars. And if you were going to look that up and, and re do some research on George Lucas and what he believes, he's a Buddhist. And he specifically made the movie Star Wars and that trilogy to try to be an influence on young people. So it, it sounds like harmless entertainment, but his goal was to give kids something to think about. Okay? Uh, then, uh, in Asia, there's the three teachings, which is basically, again, Buddhism says just take what you, you want and you leave what you don't want, and what ended up coming out of that, there's the, this movement that was called the three teachings, where it's basically an aggregate of these three different, of Confucianism and uh, Buddhism and Taoism, and then there's this pretty cool picture I found of... <laughs> So there's Confucius handing over little uh, Siddhartha Gautama to uh, Lao Tzu. Uh, so they were contemporaries, is the idea. And it's not uncommon if you were to bump into somebody from uh, that region that might actually believe in all three. And so it can get fairly complicated. I would just encourage you, though, like, even though we're, we're being, it's, a, it's value for a, valuable for us to be exposed to the general ideas of what, uh, what Buddhists believe. When you go and speaking to somebody who has a different worldview than you, go as a learner, go as an ambassador, ask them questions. What do you believe? Where do we come from? Where are we going? What's wrong with us? And again, the idea of speaking the language of the gospel. What is their solution? What is their answer? And we're about to find out. We're going to get into the details of uh, how that works out for Buddhism.
So as we proceed, what does Buddhist, what does the Buddhist uh, doctrine teach about the problem of life? Like, what is their version of the bad news, and what is their version of the good news? All right. So who was the Buddha? With this in mind, let's take a look at who the Buddha was. Note the depiction of the Buddha here. He, I can't tell whether he's a guy or a girl. Right? And it was the same thing in Hinduism. And the idea is here, when you're enlightened, there is no gender. Right? So they are ahead of the game. <laughs> also interesting to note, it's important, as important as the Buddha is to Buddhist, he is not the only Buddha that ever was. And Buddhists believe that time is cyclical, it's not linear, just like the Hindus. And so they believe there could be an infinite number of uh, Buddhas into the past. And he's, he's not the only Buddha. And you actually have the potential of having a Buddha nature as you get enlightened and release your inner Buddha. They're actually looking forward to this uh, god, this Buddha. Again, can't tell if it's a guy or a girl. But uh, the name is Maitreya, and this is the future Buddha. Presently a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is uh, when, it, when if, let's say that you're doing really great at Buddhism and you're getting to enlightenment, but you know what? You don't want to be annihilated yet. You don't want to blow out. So you decide you're going to stick around and help people out. That's a bodhisattva, okay? <laughs> and so bodhisattvas stick around and try to help other people figure stuff out before they blow out. Um, presently, Maitreya is a bodhisattva, but he's not residing on earth. He's residing in some god realm uh, called Tushita, <laughs> which is one of the diva worlds. Maitreya will descend one day to earth to preach a new dharma or law when the teachings of Gautama Buddha have completely decayed. And this sounds really familiar to what I was teaching on about Hinduism. In Hinduism, um, there was, they were waiting for the diva, or not the diva, the uh, avatar to appear who would come and reset re, uh, dharma, put everything right. And I'm bringing this up because I think just like with Hinduism, Buddhism is set up to be ready for the Antichrist. They're, they're waiting for the next Buddha to come and save them. Let's get into the Buddha's birth. Buddha was born about, again, 2,500 years ago in the town of Lumbini, which was in the foothills of the Himalayas. He was born into the warrior caste of the nobles uh, in Hinduism. His father was Sadodana, Sadodana, the king of the Shakya clan, and ruled over uh, Kapilavatsu. The night that Siddhartha the Buddha was conceived by his mom, Queen Mahamaya, uh, she had a dream that a white elephant, not the Christmas game, but a white elephant in, prophet, in prophetic terms, came into her body through the side. She was troubled by this dream, and she went to some holy men, and they said, this means you're going to give birth to a great king or a spiritual leader. Well, the night that he was born, uh, his, him and uh, Siddhartha's mom and dad were walking, and they came across a garden, and she went into labor, and she gave birth to him in a grove of trees while holding on to a tree limb. That's what we have here. She's there. And there's a the little Buddha there. And every step he took, there was a lotus that appeared magically. Miracul miraculously, the baby did not arrive the usual way. He was delivered the same out of the side of her body, and there was no blood. Um, and there was no pain. And the first thing that little Siddhartha could do when he came out was walk and talk. And he said, the first thing he said was, I'm the king of the world! That's literally what he said. One of the, the texts... And then another one said that he had, uh, he had uttered, For enlightenment I was born, for the good of all that lives. This is the last time that I have been born into this world of becoming. So, um, obviously these are legends. I don't think these, these didn't really happen this way. But this is, when you're talking to a Buddhist, this is where they think, like, the, this is the Buddha, this is who he was. And when he was uh, 
If they don't believe it literally, they believe that there's special meaning behind it. Unfortunately, his mother did not uh, get to see him come, see him, the, the prophecy come to fruition because she died seven days later. Not long after this, the Brahmin priest and soothsayers came to his dad and said that he should keep the, he, if he keeps the young prince home, he will become a ruler, but if he leaves the house, he'll, uh, he will become a spiritual leader. And Siddhartha's father wanted him to stay home. This was their only son. He wanted him to become king, so he um, cloistered him there in, the, in the, the palace, and he wasn't allowed to leave. Which leads us to the four signs. This is where it all started for Siddhartha. So you've got a, a young prince. Uh, he's been given everything that he needs. He's living a life of luxury. And there's lots of uh, details about that that I won't get into. But essentially, his dad really wanted him. His dad was really wealthy and didn't want him to become uh, some religious guy. He wanted him to be a king. And so he, he isolated him in the palace and only allowed him to experience good things. At the age of 29, Siddhartha had become a father, a husband and a father. His uh, son's name was Ralunan, which it means fetter, which is an important point. Remember that word, fetter. His son's name was fetter. He named his son fetter. Around this time, Siddhartha was able to convince his father to allow him to leave the palace and look at the kingdom that he would one day rule. Uh, on, he went on some chariot rides, rides. Excuse me. And it was on these chariot rides that he experienced the four signs. The first sign was an old man. So he had been isolated his whole life. He had never been allowed to see old people. And the first time he saw an old person, he's there with his little uh, his servant driving the chariot. He's like, whoa, what is this? And it's like, well, um, it's an old guy. <laughs> like, whoa, is that going to happen to me? It's like, yeah, everybody gets old. And Siddhartha was like, oh, he had never, he didn't know. This is his first experience as a kind of spoiled rich kid. Something's going to happen to him. He has no control over it. He's going to get old. The second sign that he saw was a sick man. So he's on another chariot ride out of the palace, and he comes across some guy kind of sprawling around on the ground, and he's like, whoa, 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 what's, what's going on with this guy? Oh, uh, that guy's sick. What? So yeah, he's sick. You've never been sick before? No. What's that? Well, you, got, you know, it's, it's horrible. It happens to everybody, though. Oh, what's going to happen to me? Yep. He didn't like that. Now there's something that he couldn't control, something he didn't like. The third thing that he saw, he actually came across a funeral. He saw a dead man, a corpse. He'd never seen a corpse before. And so he stopped the chariot and he said, what, what's that? Uh, uh, so this man has passed away. Is that going to happen to me? Yep, everybody dies. Again, so Siddhartha had been uh, isolated, had only experienced luxury, everything he ever wanted. And then when he goes out and sees the real world, he's disillusioned. They've been holding on to me. I could get sick. I could die. And now he's a father, and he's, he's, he's got a, a son. Uh, he's married, and he has a son. And he's going to be a king one day. He's going to have to take care of all these people. And they could get sick, and they could die. And they're going to get old. What am I going to do? And so he's got, you know, he's having an existential crisis. And the, on the fourth straight ride, he goes out and he finds this monk. And this was probably one of those uh, Shramana monks. They uh, were devout ascetics. They starved themselves. Uh, they only lived off of uh, what people would put in their bowl. And he saw this guy, and he seemed pretty happy. This homeless guy begging. And uh, that made a, a profound impression on him because when he went back home, it wasn't long until he came to his great renunciation. And this is something that Buddhist monks do. They renunciate, they turn away from, they reject, they push away everything in life. After these experiences, he made the choice to renounce his life and live the life of a monk un, uh, until he discovered the correct way to live. This was called the great renunciation. So he snuck out of the palace in the middle of the night not to see his uh, wife and child because he knew he couldn't leave if he had to say goodbye. He abandoned his wife and child. He forsook his responsibilities to one day be king. He left behind all his wealth and luxury. He cut his hair and put on the garb of a monk. And this is a quote from one of the books I read. It says, He vowed to live an unfettered existence, 
Family was not part of the life of a spiritual seeker. He had to go forth alone. So in my mind, as a dad looking at my kid, <laughs> he's been spoiled his whole life. He finally figures out that he can't control what's going on. And, in, and he's freaked out about the responsibility of being a dad and a husband and one day being a king. So he decides to go, throw it all away, and, and go on a spiritual journey. Now, I don't know if that was what was really going on in his heart. I mean, it was 2,500 years ago. But <laughs> you can see he's having this crisis because of the isolation. At the height of, uh, in the middle of the night, okay, so he ran away, got that, got that. In the, yeah, so in the middle of the night, he flees, puts on the clothes, shaves his head. He's going to go to work. He's, he joins five monks who view asceticism as a means to burn off bad karma and thus get closer to escaping samsara. They believe that if they suffer enough in this life, they could perhaps save themselves in the next life. They sought to overcome their desires of the body through the power of the mind. Practices like self-denial, mortification, meditation, and yoga were very common. He was seeking to transcend the self and become enlightened. At the height of his asceticism, he claimed to have, uh, it is claimed that he lived off a single grain of rice a day with, and drank only muddy water. Together with his five companions, he wore little or no clothing, slept out in open air no matter the weather, starved himself beyond measure, and even ingested his own waste matter. Uh, somebody to look up to. He, lay on the most, he laid on the most uncomfortable surfaces possible and inflicted, several de and se inflicted severe deprivation on himself, convinced that external suffering would banish the internal suffering forever. That was his attempt to become one of those uh, Sramana monks that were um, trying to reform Hinduism. But one day while he was uh, going down that path, he did that for actually, he did that for six years with nothing to show for it. He went so far in his asceticism that he nearly died. Fortunately, uh, uh, a young girl named Sujata brought him a bowl of rice porridge and he took it and his buddies left him as a, as a sellout. <laughs> his little community of monks left him because he had a bowl of porridge. Um, this broke his vow of asceticism, which, uh, which he had made, and, and so he made another vow. The next vow that he made was that he would meditate under the Bodhi tree until he reached enlightenment or died. He became hyper-focused on every action, now, we're going to get introduced here to some of his ideas of uh, the realizations that he had about life. And one of these concepts is uh, mindfulness, which is something that you hear about in business or in counseling or um, in self-help books. He became very, very aware of the moment. Thus, he was, thus was born the concept of mindfulness. These meditative practices helped him realize the impermanent nature of all things, including temptations and desires. He also noticed how all things are interrelated. Life became filled with interconnectedness and a sense of impermanence. And interconnectedness is related to their version of, of karma. When they think of karma, they think of interconnectedness, almost kind of like a chaos theory. You know, a butterfly got its wings going over here and it causes a, a hurricane across the world. So they see karma as more like that. It's not... Um, there's nobody deciding. It's, it's more of a law of nature. Um, and in that way, we're all connected. And, and if I do unskillful karma, it will have an effect. And if I do skillful karma, it'll bring uh, skillful karma back to me. Some of these legends claim that uh, through meditation, he was able to uh, review and learn from all of his past lives and even in the lives of others. He understood in a flash of illumination that humans suffered because they insisted on permanence in a world of constant change. People maintained an identity which they called the self and which would not change. Maintained clothing and objects they thought were theirs 
and maintained relationships with others which they believed would last forever. But none of these were true. The nature of life, all of life, was change. And the way to escape suffering was to recognize this and act on it. At this moment, he became the Buddha, the awakened one, and was freed from his ignorance and illusion. Having attained complete enlightenment and recognizing the interdependent and transient nature of all things, he recognized that he could now live however he pleased without suffering and could do whatever he wanted. <laughs> he had to try to share his experience with others, so he preached his first sermon in the Deer Park in Sarnath. Um, and it was in this sermon that he described the, the, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Okay? So that's essentially the story of, Buddha, uh, of the Buddha, the, the Buddha. He was a prince, and he was isolated for a long period of time. When he was coming of age, he had a, a crisis, and in that crisis he decided to throw his, renunciate, not throw away, excuse me, don't want to be mean here, renunciate things, and, and, and pursue spirituality. Um, and he became enlightened while he was meditating for a number of months under a Bodhi tree. And he realized that life is impermanent and the big problem is suffering and, and the cause of suffering. And that's where we're going to get into now. So, the common beliefs of Buddhism. The sacred texts here. So it's called some of sometimes it's called the Pali Canon. Sometimes sometimes it's called the uh, Tripitaka, and sometimes it's called the Three Baskets. But essentially, it's these three texts that are Buddhists uh, see as somewhat authoritative. Again, it's all relative, but they go to these books to try to find answers. So we have the Venanya Pit, uh, Basket, the Sutra Basket, and the Abhi, uh, Abhidhamma Basket. Oh, sorry, there's the slide. You should have been looking at that. It's there in your notes. So the three baskets. Uh, interesting to note about the three baskets. Uh, they were originally handed down through oral tradition, and the they weren't written down until 400 years after the Buddha. right? And that doesn't bother a Buddhist, but it bothers me. <laughs> You know, because uh, we as Christians think it's important for us to have an authoritative text that's anchored in history, and we want to make sure that it's accurate. But uh, for the Buddhist, their earliest writings were written some 400 years after the Buddha's death. How do they know that's actually what he taught? They don't. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter. It's what the teaching is. Uh, it also contains 50 volumes, and it's 11 times larger than the Bible. So lots of reading to do if you're a Buddhist. Uh, what if science upsets the Buddhist baskets? Here's a quote from the Dalai Lama. If, sci if scientists, scientific analysis were conclusively to demonstrate certain claims of Buddhism to be false, then we must accept the findings of science and abandon those claims. So they're ready to jettison whatever they need to jettison. Again, they're pretty easy going. Make whatever works. This is what makes them appealing. You can kind of like custom, uh, customize your, your form of Buddhism. So what do they believe about God? Is there a God? Some say Buddhism is atheistic, but there are many Buddhists who believe in a variety of gods. I, I believe that Buddha was atheistic. At least he didn't believe in the creator god, Brahman, and he was reacting against that. And you don't need to be believe in God in order to be a Buddhist. But from what I could gather, uh, there is a, a, the realm of six realms. So you have the God realm, which is uh, where you, can be, you could be re reincarnated in Buddhism into the God realm and hang out with other gods and read the Dharma. It's pretty cool. Or you could be born into the jealous God realm, which is kind of like your little terrorist God. You get around and cause mischief. Or the animal realm, you could be uh, reincarnated as uh, an animal. Or a hungry ghost realm, that's a scary one. The hell realm, there's actually several uh, levels of hell in Buddhism. Um, but you'll ultimately get out kind of like a purgatory. And then there's the human realm. The human realm is, is, has the most potential because you have the most opportunity to, div to, to manipulate karma. Um, one note here is that 
when you're talking to a Buddhist, you probably don't want to talk about being born again. Uh, because they see born again in their, their doctrine all over the place. They, you'd have to take careful measures. If, I guess you could bring it up and you'd have to go into some detail. Let me tell you what it means to be born again as a Christian and then go into that detail. But you wouldn't just uh, kind of throw those terms out there because they might dismiss you right away and think, oh, I know about being born again. Because they think of reincarnation and being born again a lot. Um, some common beliefs. Oop. Lost control of my clicker. So, although Buddhism sees truth as relative, the three marks are preserved, are, are, are almost absolute. The three marks are dukkha, which means suffering, Anissa, which means impermanence, and Atana, which is no self. And those are the things that the Buddha realized when he was under the Bodhi tree, right? Life is suffering, life is impermanent, there is no self. Um, then we have the five aggregates, and I have that kind of pointing off of the, the no self, because this is what they believe makes up humans. The five aggregates are dependent, are dependent organization. They need each other and are always under the state of constant change. This is why there is no real permanent self because you're always changing on a, on a molecular level and on a spiritual level. You're always changing. You can't really find the permanent self. That's what they mean when they talk about there's no self. According to Buddhist teaching, our self is a perspective. It is a product of our perception. Our sense of self is an event that occurs rather than a thing that exists. Imagine pausing a movie to see a single still image. Every film is made up of those individual frames. But when we watch movies, we perceive them as a continuous moving image telling a connected story. Ourselves are like the film strip, a collection of unique still frames that are generated in each moment-to-moment -moment experience of being alive. If you could pause time and see the individual frame in a specific moment, you would see that it is slightly different from the one just before it and just after it. In other words, the you of right now is not the same you of the previous moment. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, don't, I just don't see any much value in all of that. And I wouldn't get, when you're talking with a Buddhist and they start going on about such things, it's time to bring it back to the gospel. It's time to bring it back to your worldview. And what does the Bible say about self? Um, the Buddha emphasized dharma and karma. So here, uh, the Buddha's teachings on dharma were rooted in the fundamental principles of the Four Noble Truths. So here's the Four Noble Truths. First, the first noble truth is that uh, life is suffering. The truth of dukkha. The second noble truth is the cause of dukkha. The cause of dukkha is desires, the things that you want. The third noble truth is that um, the truth of the cessation of dukkha, that is, um, how to stop it. And then the fourth noble truth, or that stopping it is possible, is that the path that leads to cessation. And the path that leads to cessation of dukkha or suffering are the... Um, is the Eightfold Path. But here I just wanted to uh, show you some the answers to what happens when I die. So a Buddhist believes in samsara, just like the Hindu. They believe in the cycle of death and rebirth. They believe in karma, a cause and effects of life. They believe in reincarnation, which isn't uh, the reincarnation of Atman into another body, but it's like a reconstruction of the five aggregates, which are those things we just looked at back here the matter, which is the five senses, feelings, perception, volition, consciousness. So they kind of, um, it's like all that makes up you is broken down and then bring, brought back together in, into something new, but there was no soul ever involved. There was no self involved. So here's the Eightfold Path, and this is where all the work is done. <laughs> and it's a lot of work. There's no grace here. 
How should I live as a Buddhist? The Eightfold Path, right understanding. Well, you first you need to believe the Four Noble Truths. The second, right aspiration. You need to renounce all desire. So the goal here is that you're trying to distance yourself from all desire, to cut off. The right speech, to speak only truth and not to say evil things. That's a good one. Right behavior, um, to exercise self-control and not to do evil things. This is pretty simple, really, but not possible to obtain apart from Christ. Right occupation. This is an interesting one. So you've got to have the right job if you're a Buddhist because you wouldn't want to have a job that doesn't benefit others or that would cause harm to people. So you, it wouldn't make sense that you would be in the military. But there's a lot of Buddhists out there that do a lot of kung fu fighting. You know what I'm saying? So there's, like <laughs> there's inconsistencies uh, within Buddhism. Right effort. Commit totally to the middle way. Right mindfulness. Exhibit mental self-control. Again, this is a, a big part uh, influence in Western society. Mindfulness, mindfulness techniques, uh, being in the moment, not getting caught up in the regrets of the past, not getting caught up in the fears of the future, but being present right now and making the most of right now. Very pragmatic. Uh, right meditation. Perform meditation through yoga to obtain complete moments of detachment. Again, just like Hinduism, and I'm convinced the more I've been studying this and, and just, you know, kind of trying to keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on in the world, everybody's trying to get out of this state of consciousness. <laughs> Whether it's drugs or TV, movies, video games, Buddhism, Hinduism, everybody knows there's something wrong with life and they're trying to get out of this one in some way. And that's why we have in our possession something to give them, a better answer than all of these falsehoods and these lies, right? Something better than drugs, something better than Buddhism, Hinduism, and video games. We have Jesus Christ. So, I wanted to give you a couple more thoughts here that's in your handout. I didn't have the slides together for these ones. Very, very important to the Buddhist are the three jewels, which are the Buddha, the yellow jewel, which is the idea that they look to the Buddha as um, their help or their example. Then they have the, the, the blue jewel, which is the Dharma, the teachings of Buddhism. And then they have the Sangha, which is the community of Buddhist practitioners. So, and these three are really important, and it's, they, they're true in all different forms of Buddhism. We've got the Buddha, we've got the teaching, and we've got the community to help us carry out the Eightfold Path. And then they're going to need all the help they can get. In the different schools of Buddhism, just in general, there's more than this, but in general, some of the big ones are, which I mentioned earlier, uh, Theravada Buddhism, which is the teaching of the elders. This is the one, their key virtue is wisdom. They're considered to be the oldest and probably the closest to uh, what Buddha actually taught. Uh, they don't believe in God. Uh, the only thing that they have is nirvana, and, and Buddha is considered to be a saint. Um, also wanted to, to explain again a little bit about what nirvana is for them. So moksha in Hinduism was to be reunited with uh, Brahman. But in Buddhism, there's two forms of nirvana. Once you get into a state of enlightenment here on this earth, then you have basically put up a wall between you and all of your desires so that you don't care whether or not they come true. And you see life for the way it really is, and you don't experience suffering. That's your state of nirvana here in this life, as best as I understand it. And, and once that's through, if you don't want to become a bodhisattva and help everybody else figure it out, then you enter into eternal nirvana, which is annihilation. You are blown out like a candle. The desire is blown out. So in life for a Buddhist, the, the um, desire is blown out. And once you've got that in life, then you have reached enlightenment. But ultimately, eternal nirvana, if you want to call it that, is to cease to exist and never experience suffering again. Doesn't sound like there's much to look forward to there. Does there? No. <laughs> so that's their nirvana. Okay, so another school of Buddhism is my Mahayana, which is called the Greater Vehicle. Their key virtue is compassion. 
Buddha is considered to be a savior figure and is worshipped by some of them. Uh, this is where you would find Zen Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism. And then they have the last one there, the Pure Land Buddhism. Their key virtue there is faith, and uh, the God. Uh, the goal is to be reborn into the quote-unquote Pure Land, which is one of these other dimensions where you can get enlightened there. So they've essentially they've given up the Eightfold Path. I can't do it, so I'm going to look to uh, this Buddha character, Amitabha, Amitabha Buddha, as the Savior. And if you chant his name in this life, then you believe by faith that he will have you be reborn, because he's a bodhisattva, into the pure land. And if you're in the pure land, then you're going to get enlightened. So it's a pretty sweet deal for the Buddhists. Then influences of, the, of Buddhism. I kind of mentioned some of these as we were going through, but martial arts is a big influence. So if you, I have my kids in martial arts, um, you need to be careful if, you have, if you're in martial arts or if you're putting your kids in martial arts. Um, even if they claim to be a Christian, I would encourage you to sit in some of the classes and actually hear what they're teaching your kids. Just like you hopefully would want to know what the coach on the football team is teaching your kids. You want to know what the uh, martial arts teacher is teaching your kids. Because Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism are mingled in there. Then Zen is, uh, again, another thing that's all across America. Um, it, it has this idea of peace and uh, in, in mind, in habits, and in surroundings. So like in, in interior decoration. Uh, again, again, that idea that there's a book out there called The Zen of Motor, Motorcycle Mechanic uh, Zen. And then mindfulness is also a big influence uh, through self-help books, business, and counseling. Yoga can, is also, just like in Hinduism, is, a, is an inroad of Hindu, or Buddhism and Hinduism, as the teachers might uh, also inc incorporate Buddhist teachings. And then Hollywood is probably the biggest one by far, as many people in Hollywood, actors, uh, filmmakers, uh, music artists, um, and even, as I said earlier, Star Wars was built on the ideas of Buddhism. So what should be our biblical response? And I have here uh, 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? No matter what Taoism says about the yin and the yang, <laughs> there is no fellowship between light and darkness. And what accord has Christ with Belal? And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, and God has said, I will dwell with them and walk with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then also in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled. So we should, we should identify the best that we can by the grace of God, the doc, false doctrines of Buddhism and reject them and not be a part of them, not, not, give, not be like the Israelites and play around with them and then ultimately be overcome with them because they let in paganism into their, into their belief system back in the Old Testament. We don't want to be like that. But we also want to see Buddhists around us as opportunities to be ambassadors and share the gospel with them. And I, I think the touch point there is, is Buddha's original problem, the problem of evil, how to handle suffering. Because the Christian worldview has the best answer for why there's evil in the world and why there's suffering and how to handle suffering. And in, in, in a nutshell, I would say the reason why an all-knowing, loving God, all-powerful God would allow the world to be the way it is is because he wanted a real relationship with them. And because he wanted a real relationship with them, he had to allow for the possibility that they would choose the wrong way because he wanted real love. He didn't want to separate himself from love and desire. He wants to be with them. He wants them to have joy. He doesn't want them to try to cut off all experience. He wants to spend eternity with them. But because he wanted a real relationship based on real love, he had to allow for the possibility of evil to happen in the garden. And because he's a God of love who operates under the greatest ethic, love, he expressed that in the greatest possible way by sending his son Jesus Christ to sacrifice himself on their behalf so that their sins could be taken care of forever. 
So uh, we just have a, we have a better answer for why there's evil in the world and why there's suffering and how to overcome it. Because whether they want to believe it or not, when they reach their nirvana, it's not going to be a cessation of suffering, is it? No, it's going to be worse than they'd ever, ever experienced here on this planet. Finally, with regards to us, I, I was reminded of Philippians chapter 4, verses uh, 6 through 9, which says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, an attitude of gratitude, let our requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guide our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. We do not need Buddhism to make our lives better. We have Jesus Christ. And we should heed verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate. Don't empty your mind, but fill your mind with these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these things do, and what will be the result? Suffering? No, the result will be the peace of God will be with you. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, here was uh, my best attempt to just expose us all to what Buddhism teaches in general. There's a lot there. Maybe a lot of it could be forgotten. I pray that as we move forward and see ourselves as ambassadors and see ourselves in a sin-cursed world, that we would not, that we would be careful to, to reject the false doctrines of Buddhism in our lives, whether it be through movies or workouts or relationships or friends, and that we would seek rather to be a light, a beacon of truth and hope and uh, in the lives of those that are around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.